Episode 222 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the English singer-songwriter, actor and broadcaster Steve Harley. Steve is best known as the frontman of the pop group Cockney Rebel, who had five hit albums in their heyday in the 1970s, most notably their debut, Human Menagerie and 12 hit singles including Judy Teen, Mr Soft and the chart-topping Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me. Steve also had a top 10 hit duetting with Sarah Brightman on the original version of The Phantom of the Opera. This interview took place in 2020 when Steve was promoting his sixth solo studio album, Uncovered. Am I right in thinking this is your 12th album coming out? Oh, it might be 13th or 14th, I mean, with, with greatest hits and stuff. Uh, yes, of course. If you, dis- if you exclude them, do you know, I, I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't know. We've got, these, uh, we've got these geeks around the country who know far more about the history of my life professionally than I ever will. <laughs> Some of them are amazing, these guys. And females, what they know... And what the information they dig up is, is quite quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, it's 12 or 13, Peter, yeah. Uh, maybe. And where does this one rank in terms of your favourite or most enjoyable albums? Oh, this is way up there. Way up. This is... Um, I'm more proud of this, or prouder, of this, what we're sitting on at the moment, than I can ever remember being. Brilliant. I mean, that's the absolute truth. And yeah. unless when I was 20... Two in 1973, and we'd just finished the Human Menagerie with, with the orchestra and choir all over, all over it. You know, that was an astonishing experience for a young fella that, that had just been recently before that. I'd been busking and singing those songs in the subways, and suddenly there's a symphony orchestra and a choir all over the three-corded Sebastian. <laughs> fantastic. Well, it was fantastic. It, it was. It was uh, incredibly uh, impressive for a young man. Mm. But since then, you know, I have had great, uh, great times, great moments. I've released records I'm very oh. proud of. But, but this acoustic stuff, yeah, we had such a great time making the record with such lovely people and virtuoso players. Yeah. And it, it features covers of songs by some of your favourite artists. How many mm. of those artists have you met? That's not absolutely right, mm-hmm. if I might say. It's, okay. It, Favorite songs. Okay. The artists uh, wouldn't figure very prominently in, in, in my concern about what am I going to do. Yeah, two of the songs are mine, and nine of them are other people's. And uh, yeah, I, I think that I was always going to give a nod to Dylan at some point in my life. Mm. Uh, so when I paint my masterpieces on there. Yeah, good. Uh, Have you ever met Bob Dylan? Oh, yeah. Don't you know my Bob story? I don't. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> I've told it on stage quite a few times. I was watching him in the, from the wings at a festival, an outdoor festival in uh, Stratford, or up Stratford on Avon Way, mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. I didn't really want to be in the wings, but as I was walking around to the mush pit, what, mosh pit, whatever it was, yep. I was going around there with my friend. I had all the backstage passes, of course, and... Barry Dickens, who is his agent and was my agent when I, in 1973, mm. Barry said, here, come up here, come up here. So we went up and watched from the wings. And then we went to backstage to the catering marquee with a little, little ticket, 
to get dinner. Mm. And in walked Dylan and his band, five guys, and they all walked through to a far corner of the, the marquee, mm-hmm. and they ate. And I was there with my pal, who is a very successful newspaper reporter, agency man these days, owns his own agency, but he trained with me as a young reporter in the late 60s, early 70s. So he's worldly and very sophisticated, uh, very sharp. And we were with a very nice, very bright young fellow, a friend of mine, who played guitar for me and was in Van Morrison's band at the time, and Morrison was on the bill. Mm-hmm. So my guitarist, Alan Darby, and my friend Richard Goss and I are sitting there, and they'd finished, and they were coming back through to leave, and there was torrential, torrential rain on this marquee, like drumming mm-hmm. on the canvas. And I couldn't resist. I just, I had made a cover a few years earlier of, Love Minus Zero, No Limit. Oh, love it, yeah. Yeah, well, I've covered that, and it's it's uh, on um, an album called Poetic Justice. Mm-hmm. And I've always heard that Dylan hears everything. Oh. I've been told by people close to him that they get everything to him, and he listens. All these covers. I mean, okay. he must drive in potty. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I stood up and reached my hand out and just said, Bob, Steve Harley and he took my hand and we really didn't expect that but he took my hand immediately mm-hmm. and he nodded and, and, his, and he was wearing his hoodie and his espadrilles <laughs> and lo and behold what you, you, you never would have thought was going to happen he sat down alone with me and my two pals mm-hmm. and I started to say to him about I was talking about his unplugged MTV yes I said this desolation row where you put the meter so imaginative and I really love that poetic license and why shouldn't you I I try to move my songs around on stage and the way you did that the meter sat so awkwardly but but, but just so interesting I was after rambling you know yeah because you're meeting a hero after 40 years and I I, they come up to me in the street not as much as they would with Dylan obviously I know my place Peter yes I do but people come up to me and they just they don't know what to say but Dylan doesn't usually have much to say. Was he, he? No, well, that's the story. He sat down, and for ten minutes, I'm jabbering away. Mm. My two mates, who are usually erudite, talkative, loquacious, knowledgeable, just, they just dried. Yes, I bet. They froze. I rum- mam- mumbled and rambled on. And eventually, after ten minutes, Bob had only ever said to me, yeah, and then uh, oh, 10 minutes in, and I said, the rain was absolutely torrential. It was really noisy. Mm. And I said, I, <laughs> you know, at least it wasn't uh, raining like this during your set. Yeah. And he kind of, that was his getaway, you know. Oh, no. And he stood up and he just said to me, it was like listening to Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, yeah. when he says, uh, the horror, the horror, the comrade line, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dylan stood up, I stood up, he took my hand again, he put his hand out, and he just said to me, the weather, the weather. Is that it? <laughs> it was gone. Oh, no. The weather, oh, the God. weather. So you didn't even get a selfie or an autograph or anything like that? No, or? I wasn't. Ah, oh, come on. I uh, couldn't do that. No, well, I, I, do you know Billy Sloan? Yes, I do. Yeah, I know you mean Scottish... Uh, yeah, yeah. Very general. good old friend yeah. of mine, a okay. big supporter and a good friend. Yeah. Billy was bumped into Dylan uh, at soundcheck time outside one of the big venues in Glasgow about 10 years ago, and he was with us, a couple of heavies. And 
Billy had an album with him that he was going to take to the venue. He, you know, he gets in anywhere he likes. Mm. And he just on the street said, oh, Bob, Bob, will you, can I ask you to sign this? And this, mm. <laughs> the bodyguard dude just said to him, we don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't going to be a fan, yeah. except, uh, of course I am, but a year earlier I was in uh, Central Park South at the, uh, the Ritz Plaza having a glass of wine with a log fire burning while my, my, my wife and two kids were, were skating on the ice rink mm -hmm. in New York and uh, Muhammad Ali came in. Oh. And I, by the time I decided to, to really, really go up and just say, look, excuse me, but you know, you made a difference. I, I used to watch all, everything he did. Um, but by the time I got up, he, the lift doors had closed behind him oh, no. with his two women. And, uh, and I swore I'd never let a hero pass me by again. Well <laughs> that's why I stood up for for, Dil yeah. for, for Dylan, yeah. and it, it, you know that's my Bob story. But oh, it, fantastic! Well, yeah, yeah, whatever. And and to what extent did your early musical heroes come from hearing the music your parents listened to when you were a child? Oh dear, not at all, not in the slightest. No, my mum was a really good jazz singer. I know. Yeah. Yeah, and so the radio was radio. The Light Program. Are you old enough to know the Light Program? Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Pre-Radio 1. I'm 59 now. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. when we were kids, there was the Light Program. Yeah. And it was like what became Radio 1. That was always on with Jazz and Buddy Holly and Elvis and Cliff. Yeah. They were on, yeah. But Buddy when I heard Bob Dylan, they, they, they had, in 1963, they had no interest in like folks. They just thought it was a noise and a racket and they yeah. didn't get it at all. I had the same problem in my house. <laughs> may, may we know your parents' names and occupations? My dad, Ronald Nice. Yes, my real name? Yeah. And my mum was Joyce. Okay. What did they do for a living? Well, you know, if you, it's interesting back then. I mean, I was born in 51 and I was the second. My sister was born in 1949. And uh, at that time, my dad was on the professional books. <laughs> at Brighton and Hove Albion football. Oh, right. He was a top, top player. I mean, he was the youngest of nine children, and uh, all these brothers and sisters would always say, Ronnie was the best, Ronnie was the quickest. And when we were kids at Greenwich Park and Blackheath, with a couple of coats down as goalposts, he was always a yard quicker than all the other dads. Mm. They couldn't, keep, couldn't get near him. But he, he gave that up to become a builder's mate and then for the rest of his life until he retired he was a milkman oh, okay. he was with the Royal Arsenal Cooperative Society the RACS hmm. down in Deptford and Greenwich with a huge monster milk round of 600 calls oh. my mum gave up the singing like oh. they, they did in those days they had babies and gave up those silly careers because no money in it my dad wouldn't yeah. have got much paid much as a footballer and my mum was only semi-professional anyway hmm. did any of your siblings become musicians Ian, yeah, my brother Ian, I mean, only semi-pro, he played in my band for a while, back in, I think, the 90s. Yeah. He's a pretty good player, but he lives out in the Far East, so we're not in touch very much. My son's a good pianist, mm. Care, he's yeah. very, very good, yeah. but again, I never encouraged it. <laughs> yeah, and like, uh, like Tom Jones and Ringo Starr, you experienced very poor health as a youngster. Um, what bearing do you think that early setback had on your motivation to make a success of your life? I would think everything. It, it, everything, you're informed entirely by your childhood experiences, you know, 
Is it the Jesuits who say, give me the child until he is seven, and then I'll give you the man. I'll show you the man. And yeah. by the age of seven, you're very well formed and informed by what you've experienced to that point. There's no question at all. I see it all the time. Like, yeah, but by the time I was seven, when I was 15, 16, I'd spent nearly four years in hospital, wow. on and off, a year here, a year there, six months there, three months there, you know. How inspirational was the Rolling Stones' visit? To <laughs> that was funny because they came through this ward. There were 12 of us, all under 16. And they were on a goodwill mission in those days. They did that sort of thing. They, they turned up in a very battered blue 1,300-weight Bedford van and strolled through the ward, chatting and having a little chat here and there. But we had a, we had, we had a huge poster of the fabs at the end of the ward. <laughs> There's this picture of the Beatles yeah, in, yeah. in their Edwardian bathing costumes and straw boaters at the seaside. And they really did go up to that and start mucking them and taking them, you know, yeah. ripping them apart. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, come on, guys, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm here, come here. <laughs> they, they were on their second or third hit by then. Come on, I'd been out, I want to be your man. Did you ever meet them again in later life and oh, remind yeah. them? Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I've had a little time with Jagger. Hmm. We played with them, he asked for me, bless him. Yeah, yeah, we went out and did, um, we did two, which is very unusual. They have a different support band at every show they play. And he, he asked me for two, and uh, about, about seven or eight years ago, we went out and played Warsaw in a race track, and two or three days later, St. Petersburg. Hmm. In front of the Hermitage Museum. Wow! Did you remind him of the hospital visit? No, I've actually spent social time in the late seventies, early eighties with Keith Richard, and again, no, I'd come away at the end of a night always thinking, "You should, you gotta, gotta." <laughs> you should. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It's sort of. Steve, oh. were you encouraged to learn violin and guitar because your mum had ambitions for you musically, or maybe just to give you a calming pastime as you struggled health-wise? No, every, everyone played at school. Everyone had an instrument, everybody. I was 10, so it was just for the fourth year, fourth form of primary school that I had my lessons at school with Mr. Harmon. Mm -hmm. And then I played at Asks. I went up to Haberdasher's yes. Grammar School yeah. and, and played. I continued playing there for a couple of years. Or lessons, you know, and in the school orchestra. But I, I was useless. I was absolutely useless. But I tell you what, with the violin, in the lessons, you have to learn to read. And yeah. so to this day, I can read a top line pretty well. Okay. And I write a top line in the studio quite often, mm. in my own version of it. And mm. so it gives you that grounding. Mm. But when I play with proper musicians like Barry Wickens or Phil Beer, those sort of yeah. fiddle players, it's, it's, hang on, I'm glad I gave that up. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were a youngster, did anyone predict you'd be a star one day? My dear friend Anthony Harding, who was my English master and head of English at ASKS, he encouraged me with extracurricular literature. I was in hospital for O-levels, and... I would have with my hospital ward teacher, she and I would go through the curriculum that was sent down from South London to Carshalton Beaches in Surrey, where mm -hmm. I was ensconced after more surgery. And we would do this curriculum, I mean, essays, and we, we would finish the homework, as it were, quicker than they do at school because there's 20 of them in the class. Yeah. I was alone, one-to-one, -one, and I had nothing else to do. 
so then we'd send it back and Anthony, my English master, or he was head of English, he wasn't always for six years my English teacher because, mm. you know, you moved up, you got different guys. But um, he's to this day uh, my, my very close friend, yes. incredibly erudite and literary man. Yeah. He said to me, when I played him some songs, when I was still a journalist, when I was still mm. in my second year of indentures out in Colchester, and I spent a lot of time with him, and I would play him these songs, and he'd just say, Stephen, you have to pursue this. Okay. He said, career or no career, you have to pursue this. These are, this is such interesting work. Yeah. And it, bless him. It, so I kind of looked in the mirror when I, that, that day and thought, has he got And two years later, I'd, I gave up the, the career in, you know, yeah. in journalism. When you were a newspaper reporter, did you cover any well-known stories or interview anyone famous? There's a book which was sent to me about 10 or 12 years ago written on a certain subject that occurred in Stepney. Mm-hmm. Well, my last year was on the East London Advertiser in uh, Mile End. I mean, that's interesting. We covered yeah. Mile End and Whitechapel. It's Crayland. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I lived a bit of a life for that year. Right. Yeah, it wasn't all Bow Magistrates Court. There was some real action went on. Hmm. But, yeah, I, I got a, a scoop on a story about school children Mm. so this would have been 72 and this school in Stepney one of their teachers was reprimanded and probably sacked he he was sacked and the school went on strike the school children and I was sent round to cover the story and it was front page of the East London Advertiser front Mm. cover Mm -hmm. and as soon as it went to bed on Wednesday afternoon we did what we always did down there sent it off as lineage and sent it to the Express and the Mirror for a few bob. Yeah. And it made the Nationals. Oh, good. And someone wrote a, a book about it, and uh, it might be him, the school teacher. He sent it mm. to me. He mm. communicated through my office. He got to me. Brilliant. Yeah, it was really, I like all that. So as a journalist, you were a journalist by day and gigging by night. Would that be right? Only in the, when I was back in London. I'd done a few out in Colchester or Braintree. I did a few mm. folk club appearances for no money. Even in London, it was for no money. I only floor spotted, which these days they call open mic or something. But we used to turn up at Bungie's and Cousins and the the Troubadour on Fulham Road. We'd turn up there with our guitar cases, you know. And when John Martin, John and Beverly Martin, his wife, was with him as a duet then, duo, or Bert Yanch and those sort of people I went to see, and Richard Thompson, when they had an interval... You know, floor spotters who'd get up and just perform. Well, I, I never went down very well at all because I'd already written the whole of The Human Menagerie. So I was singing. I'm sort of, with a real folk crowd, I'm singing, the hum, I'm singing Muriel the Actor and Loretta's Tale and Sebastian and just honing my songs and learning my trade, you know? When and why did you take the stage name Harley? God, I haven't got a clue. Well, who gave you the name Harley? Where'd no you... one's asked me that for a lot of years, thankfully, because I remember always having to say, I really don't know, and feeling like I was, I was being arrogant. But I truly, I think I like the big, I like the H. Right. Not the motorbikes? No, I've never had any affinity with, I can't even ride a bicycle with, with my leg. So how old were you when you chose that surname? Just as we were close to signing with EMI, Cockney Rebel. Yeah. I, I formed it as... St- certainly, I've got demos I made 
in a four-track demo studio in Whitechapel, which have, and I've got them in my study at home, and I saw them not long ago, these white little white boxes of tape mm-hmm. of early demos of early songs, and it says Steve Nice. Okay. So that was 72. Oh. But by 72, end of, and once Stuart Elliott and I had formed, we put an ad in the Melody Maker, <laughs> soft rock group needs a fiddle player or something. <laughs> I changed it then, and I don't know. I tell you, I can tell you why, but not why I chose that name. But I can tell you why I changed my name. It's because I always believed that when I was in a spotlight, when I was going to be in a spotlight, when I was on stage in the folk clubs even, I was not really Mrs. Nice's little little boy anymore. Um, I know that sounded a little arcane, but it's interesting to consider it. I don't very often have to. But, yeah, I'd, I would have felt that I wasn't mum and dad's son anymore. Oh. I was actually in performance mode. Yeah. Kind of, like, taking on a role. Where did the name Cockney Rebel come from? Well, when I left home, just before I was 18, to go to Colchester to sign on to my indentures, a year later I was at home in New Cross having Sunday lunch, and my mum gave me, before I left, to drive back to Colchester, she gave me a carrier bag full of my business she'd found all over the all over the, the house the flat and she said look i'll play it away if you want but they're yours there were notebooks hmm. i was always writing and in one of them i found a few months later a very long autobiographical poem which i'd started at the age of 15 in hospital and it was quite long, about a page and a half of, of a notebook, not A5 kind of size notebook in those days, an exercise book. And I read it through and was a bit embarrassed, but it was called The Cockney Rebel. Ah. And I thought, it's a useless poem, but a great title. Yeah. Yeah. So I borrowed my own, <laughs> you know, I borrowed from it. Um, I just thought it would look good on a marquee, you know. Yeah, brilliant. Um, uh, Were you always going to be the lead singer? I was always going to be the leader. Okay. I would yeah. never get in a band, Peter. Yeah. yeah. I I was flattered a few days ago. I was being interviewed by uh, Daily Express down in London. Nick Dalton, who, he, he, he comes to see me. He's a fan, which I didn't I didn't know that necessarily. Okay. But uh, he was talking about my guitar playing, mm-hmm. and he'd seen me just a few weeks ago on, with the band, two nights in London, and. And I said to him, look, I couldn't get in a band. I have to be the leader. I, mm. I, can't, I wouldn't get in as the piano player, mm. although I write songs on the piano. I wouldn't get in there as a guitarist, although I mm. play the guitar on stage. So I have to create everything and lead mm. it. That's just what I was put on earth to do. And he said, you're a really good guitarist. And I said, I'm not. <laughs> I really am not. <laughs> I must do a good... Um, Impression of, impression of yeah. being a, a guitar player yeah. w- a, 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 in my own show. Oh. I'll, I'll, buy, I'll buy that. I'll take that. I'll take that. What about your singing style? Did that develop naturally, or were you ever trying to imitate the likes of Bob Dylan? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't try and imitate anyone ever. No, no, no. I, I heard Make Me Smile on Radio 2 yesterday. Mm-hmm. Ken Bruce kicked off at 9.30 with it. Yeah. I mean, we hear it a lot, of course. I heard it, and I just was wanting to say, Christ, thank God I grew up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite an affectation, the way I've performed that song. Yes. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean it as an affectation at the time. You know, you've got to understand, it's 74 mm-hmm. when we recorded it, and 72, 73, 74, 75, Brian Ferry was 
doing a strange yes. affectation on Virginia Plain. Yeah. Bowie was only just out of his um, Anthony Newley phase. <laughs> you know, it was of its time. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, I've changed immensely as a singer. Yeah, yeah. Immensely, I'm proud to say. And it comes from practice. I mean, I sing so much. Yeah. Yesterday, I interviewed David Kid Jensen. No, he, Kid. Well, he helped break my career. Yeah, well, he wanted me to pass on his warmest wishes. Oh, he's, and, he's yeah. great. Yeah, he helped break my career. I owe him a lot. Yeah. He and Johnny Walker, I'm still friends with him, seeing Sunday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Kid was, he called uh, Cockney Rebel, the leaders of third generation rock. <laughs> uh, and he played me a lot on Luxembourg. He was playing tracks from the Human Menagerie on Luxembourg. It was a great channel, a great station then, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I never forget a kindness. Steve, um, to what extent was being a pop star what you imagined it would be like? <laughs> well, I didn't ever start off wanting to be what you're calling a star. Yes. I was always more like, after I got through my Bill Gibb phase in the mid-70s, I've always dressed more like a geography teacher, <laughs> to be honest, off stage. You know, I wouldn't want to be the oldest teenager on the block. Mm. I'm not like that. And I don't live off the 70s at all. Mm. You know, I'm making, mm. I'm, I'm making original records now, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what was it like? It was every bit... Uh, it was mayhem for me. I bet. The 70s were complete yeah. mayhem. That's why I took the 80s as a bit of a long, very long, sort of five or six years, seven years sabbatical. I, I had children in the 80s, and yes. I'd had a 70s that you... You're lucky to be alive when you think... I think one saving grace for me was that all that time in hospital, when they would wake you up at two in the morning and five in the morning to give yeah. you a a jab, even though you're asleep, uh, all that morphine and stuff. And I got a real phobia, which I have to this day, of hypodermics. Oh, okay. So I was never going to be a junkie. Oh, good for you. <laughs> so I was always going to survive, provided the cocaine and the cognac didn't uh, cause me to throw up in my sleep or something, mm. gag, you know? How did life change for you when you started having hit records? I suppose it changed in that we were got, got a few bob at last, although that was only advances from EMI. We never earned any money on the road. Um, I'll tell you something interesting. I'd written all of those songs for those first two albums. Of course I had. Mm. That's why the other three walked out on me at the end of the long tour in 74. Mm. But ten or so years ago, Crispin Hunt came to see me play, mm. and we met after the show. And he had this band, The Long Pigs, with Robert, Richard Hawley. And they'd had a big hit single, well, not big, I knew it and I loved it, but most people today can't remember it at all, called Lost Myself. Mm -hmm. It's an amazingly clever narrative. And I've made my own interpretation on my new album. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God he wrote me a lovely note once he'd received it. And uh, I said to him, so you write with the guys then? It's like five names as mm. in the publishing. And he said, well... I wrote it. I wrote all of it. So why are you sharing it with the other guys if they didn't mm. write it? Well, he said, when we make the second album, I didn't want to show up in a Ferrari and they're on bikes. Uh. And I said, you might come to regret that one day because I'm sorry, that's life. Yeah. I'm yeah. a betting man. I own resources. I, I mix know. with people who pay for their, for, for their mistakes and they pay their losses. Mm -hmm. 
and that's how I am. I'm, I'm a, with a small C. I am a Christian. I am, you know, I, I care an awful lot about people. A, mm. a lot. I put people first every, every time. Steve, sorry to change the subject. How, how much of a heartthrob did you become and how did you feel about that at the time? <laughs> oh, I didn't think about it. it, it I, I, Was it a big ego trip? To have no. No, 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 I, I, no, I, but I was live on air a few years ago with Lorraine Kelly. Yeah. I like her a lot, and she said live on air to one and a half million LBC listeners, she said, I have had on up to something here, Steve, it's got very mysterious, and she said, I had you on my bedroom wall. <laughs> and I looked at her, and I'm quite good at this, and I, I closed in on the microphone live and stared her in the face, and I just said to her listeners, no, Lorraine, surely I'd remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I've met her, met her since, and she still blushes at the thought of that. <laughs> but no, I don't know. I mean, I meet them now. I meet women in their late 50s and 60s who say those things. They talk about that. And, and I can always say, well, you know, that's kind, that's nice of you, but thank heavens I carried on writing songs, eh? You know, I got to grow out of all that stuff. Talking of writing songs, who or what inspired Come Up and See Me? Well, the idea of the lyric, which came long before the tune, I was writing it down. I was getting it out of my system when those the three guys from the first Cockney Rebel walked out. Mm. And I had to get it off my chest. that they, They'd left me in the lurch. Yeah. Three, three months later, we were second headline mm. at the Reading Festival. And I was going to play that. All I had was a drummer. Stuart stayed. Uh, all I had was a drummer and I had to form a band and play to 40,000 people at Reading and I was going to do it because as I said I, I'm a betting man I don't quit I see it through and I pay for my mistakes and uh, I'm a good loser mm. <laughs> I had to write about it so I was writing this stuff about you know you'll come back one day you know what are you doing to me here what's going on here you know we're on a roll it's all happening it's good we've got big hit records we've got a 44 date sellout tour which would probably broke the camel's back, you know, mm. the, 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 the long tour, the massive number of dates, 44 of them, but all sold out and all, you know, it, it was, well, it were on a roll. Did you know Come Up and See Me was a classic? Could you tell straight away? Um, it's Make Me Smile, you mean? Yes. Oh, sorry, you call it Make Me Smile, sorry. Yeah, sorry, but Come Up and See Me is in brackets. Oh, yes. Uh, it's <laughs> okay. Um, it, 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 something was happening. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt. You, yeah. you you get a feeling something's happening. I think 10CC, Goldman and Cream and people, they would have said when they finished mixing I'm Not In Love, yeah. when Chris Thomas had finished mixing Virginia Plain, yeah. he would have looked at Ferry and said, we've got something here. Mm. And, yeah, Alan... Uh, I'm friends with Tina Charles, by the way. Who oh, she's on, on it. Yes, I know. She's one of your backing singers. Yes, yeah. Tina's on it, yeah. yeah and Linda Lewis. I and Linda's on it. Yeah, yeah. But Alan Parsons, yes. who was my engineer yeah. and co-producer of that. Yeah, when we put the guitar solo on instead of the tenor sax that I was going to use. And then that night, one evening in November 74, the managing director of EMI, Bob Mercer, popped in to say about 10 p.m. to see how we were getting on and mm. what could I hear and he'd, he'd had a bottle of wine at dinner and we said well look have a listen to this Bob and we, we hadn't finished it the, the choir was on I think we had a rough mix of the backing singers 
because there's seven or eight of us on there. And it was a rough mix. And he played it, and Bob just said, oh, number one. And I said to him, well, what, you, you really think so? He said, I'll make it, he said. <laughs> and they could in those days. They could move mountains, those big record mm. companies. What did it mean, and what does it mean for you to have had a number one record? Oh, it's a good feeling, isn't it? It's a lot. I tell you this much. It's more than a position mm. from two to one. Yes. It's more than one spot. It's life-changing. It's life-enhancing. Mm. It, it's it, it, Number two is not just one place below number one. It's a hundred places below number one. The difference is, is huge. How did you celebrate when it went to number one? We pushed each other in a swimming pool at the the, the um, Sunset Marquee in, in Beverly Hills in Hollywood. Fantastic, I love that. And we flew home the next morning. We finished the tour of America at the Whiskey. We played two nights at the Whiskey in mm. L.A. Uh, on Hollywood Boulevard there. And uh, the call came at 3 a.m. in L.A. time. It's 10 mm. o'clock in the morning here. It's 2 o'clock there, I think that we were number one and we were on the plane the next day oh. we were on the, on the plane anyway but we went we got back and went straight to uh, the hilton hotel at um holland park uh, we missed the first rehearsal up at wood lane which was a lucky break and when make me smile has been covered by other artists or used on soundtracks or in adverts is it always down to you to decide well not covers you don't need permission for a cover okay or on interpretation. It, mm. once, it, once it's in the public domain, i.e. performed by the writer, anyone can cover it. I, I didn't need permission to cover Here Comes the Sun or any of the mm. songs on my yeah. new album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another issue. But um, What's been your favourite advert for using it? No, my favourite recording is The Wedding Present. The, oh, dear, that's, that's, they, they really they nailed it. Yeah. I love the Viagra advert. That was the hilarious. Viagra ad's a bit cheesy, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I used to, I, I was with, um, it was Brian Adams, and he, he came, we were having lunch, and he, he jumped out of a cab, and he just came in, and he said, just heard your song on the radio. And I always say, which song? Yeah. I know what they mean, but what yeah. can you do? <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, come out and see me, as you all do. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. And I said to him, yeah, look, uh, he said, I said, Sounds great in the full money. Full Monty. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think... By the way, the answer to your question is, yes, it is down to me. Not the covers, but mm. the use in film, sync, sync rights. I'm the bottom line. I get mm. the veto. Mm. My publisher is uh, at Rack, uh, has mm. been since Mickey Most gave me a blank check in 1972. And Natalie gets all these offers, and she comes to me when she thinks she wants to, you know, mm. wrap one up. And she called me about the Viagra ad, and I took the call, and she just talked about the, what she was asking for. Yeah. I mean, this is Pfizer, yeah. and they wanted it exclusive. Well, that means she can't give it to anyone else for a year. It's, yeah. That's excuse me, that'll cost yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And she, she, she threw a figure at me, and I went, oh, I've got to think about it. Yes. <laughs> and mm. then I saw the storyboard mm. when I was more serious, and... Uh, Said, yeah, it's, you know, we're the, yeah. Britain doesn't lead lead the world in very much anymore. Don't but we're the first to let Viagra sell without prescription. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier your, uh, your cover of uh, "Here Comes the Sun." Did any of the Beatles ever comment on that and uh, you know compliment you about it? No, no. I've, I've met Paul several times, and he's always very sweet to me. Uh, uh, we chat and chew the card. 
I like him a lot. And no, it wouldn't have come up. And I never met George Harrison. You say, well, you, you say the Beatles. I don't think they're on it, are they? No, fair enough. A George Harrison composition. George is on it. George yeah. plays it with... Mm. Is it Ringo Drumming or Chris White? Alan White. Clapton was there when he wrote it. I'm not even sure if Paul is playing the bass. I, I really don't know. You, you can Google that sort of yeah. stuff. I don't know, to be honest, Peter. But no, it never came up, and I wouldn't mm. go fishing. I don't need that. You know, I, I, It was a big hit, and... Which other artists did you befriend when doing TV shows or tours together back in the day? Oh, not many. I, I'm, I've always been a bit of a... on the periphery of the music industry. Uh, I thought you were, you and Mark Bolan were mates. Mark was my friend. Yeah. We, we were introduced by uh, an EMI radio TV plugger <coughs> who was working on both of us at the same time, of course. And we met at uh, Cliff Richard's birthday party in the King's Road uh, restaurant. Mm. EMI bought Cliff dinner mm. with about... A, 20 of us around the table and uh, that's when the night I met Mark and we stayed as very good friends for a year and a half before he died How did his early demise affect you? I miss him to this day yeah, if you want to know the truth mm -hmm. I'm not going to get sentimental but I miss him to this day mm. obviously he'd be 71 years old now yep. uh, who can say but you know, they shall not grow old as we who are left will grow old you know yeah, yeah, yeah. And he hasn't aged. Hmm. Of course he hasn't. And yeah, he was my pal. There's no question. We spent a lot of time together hmm. running cassette tapes, writing songs and getting nowhere. <laughs> How much did you enjoy the heyday of Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel? Or did it all happen too fast to take it all in? It happened fast at the beginning, which is what a lot of the music press resented. They, they couldn't really get it together that I'd been, first of all, I'd been a journalist and, you know, quite well trained. And then, sort of very overnight success almost with Cockney Rebel. We, we only played about five shows before we signed the three-album deal with EMI. So, yeah, that all went to my head a bit. But I did enjoy it immensely. Mm. The 70s was fantastic. And, and I do remember all of it, mm. even though I was close to the edge more than, more than 100 times. Yeah. <laughs> was there any appearance or performance that you guys made in your heyday that remains a highlight for you? Like playing the Albert Hall or Madison Square Garden or no, going to Buckingham uh, uh, Palace or something? No, um, I've played so many thousands of shows. Mm. If you go way back, the most important shows we played, the first Cockney Rebel, were in Aylesbury at Friars. And out of Friars, which was run by Dave Stops, mm -hmm. who I think to this day manages Howard Jones. And Dave ran a record shop in, in Aylesbury and he put rock concerts on in Friars Hall in the Market Square and out of out of Friars in the 70s came out of there came Mop the Hoople Roxy mm. Music David Bowie Genesis Cockney Rebel the list is endless mm. and they all played there and broke from there because the enemy and Melody Maker would send people out to Aylesbury because mm. it was easy to get to and back from midweek and review the shows and front cover pictures and stuff so it, it changed lives, the Aylesbury mm. Friars. Did you guys think you'd carry on having hits ad infinitum, or were you kind of shocked when they dried up in 1979? Uh, uh, uh. Mine didn't dry up. I had Phantom of the Opera. No, I know that. I'm going to go and talk to them, but I'm talking about Cockney Rebel hits. Yeah, that was yeah. irony. I, 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 yeah, yeah. Honestly, I didn't mean that. That's uh, all right. No, I know. 
Well, were you quite disappointed when it when Cockney Rebel hits? Drying no, you up? didn't know it was drying up. You don't mm. recognise it. Okay. You live, you live and play through it. I was the architect of my own undoing to a great extent. I mean, I went to live in California, mm-hmm. where I had brunch and champagne and didn't write a damn song for nine months. And after a year, I came back because I couldn't. I missed the seasons, and it wasn't my. We knew even then it was La La Land. Yeah. It's not a new expression. Yeah. And I'm very down to earth. Well, I'm a dreamer. How can I say that? I'm mm-hmm. a Pisces baby and a writer for Grass. You know. Mm-hmm. So I'm not uh, that earthy, but I, I'm a realist, and I can't mix with people who bullshit all day long. I can't mix with people who make up, who live on Fantasy Island. I, they're not my kind of people. When did you cut your long hair, and how much have you missed it since? Hair? Yeah, so you used to have long hair in... Oh, well, everyone Rebel. did. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it in the 70s. I was a bit of a weekend hippie. Yeah, but did you cut it in the sort of late 70s, and then... I've no idea. Okay. Late 70s. I have no idea, my friend. It okay. wouldn't occur to me. I remember seeing you in the Phantom video, and um, you had shorter hair in that. So yeah. It's a very different-looking Steve Harley. Was I? I had a bloody mask on. Yeah, that's true. My face was covered. Very different-looking. <laughs> <laughs> that, that mask, yeah. they, the mask they made for me, mm. for the video with Ken Russell directing, yeah. Yeah. that was a full-face mask, wasn't it? I only had my mouth. Uh, whereas when it went on stage, they cut it, they cut it across hmm. diagonally. Yeah, that was fun. Five days in a film studio with Ken Russell. Boy, yeah. I thought lead guitar players had big egos. <laughs> you should meet people like him. Yeah. Christ. <laughs> How do you reflect now on your dabble with musical theatre? What was your experience of working with Lloyd Webber and Sarah Brightman like? Oh, I took a lot from that. I mean, I did the audition, you know, and, yes. and, I, and I passed. Yes. And it, the job was mine. Verbal contracts had been swapped for three months nearly, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, I had nearly three months of on and off working with Hal Prince. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Mm. Uh, 99.99% of Equities members would give their eye teeth to work with Hal Prince. Yes. And I had three months of him. Uh, and he changed my life. He was the first what I'd call genius I'd ever met until I met, 10 years later, I met Bob Dylan. Prince was really a genius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a special thing. He was very perceptive, uh, extremely uh, clever. He, he, he wasn't very discreet, but that's how he changed me. He changed he changed me quite seriously in '86. I became a different person, a different performer. And how did you feel when Michael Crawford replaced you then? Oh, kind of relieved. Uh, it took me five minutes to get over it because they, they basically they sacked me without before I'd even done the job. Because Crawford came along and wanted it, and mm. oh, whatever. But I'm a great fatalist, Peter. Mm. I believe, you know, one shuts, another one opens. Sorry right. for the platitude. Okay. But I'm over things quickly. I've suffered. Okay, I've been, I've been there. I've mm. suffered. I know what bad feels like. Do you Lloyd Webber ever apologise? No, 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 it's business. No, no I've, I've met him since. I was at the premiere. I went to the premiere. I was at the second night. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've been t- I went to Los Angeles to interview Michael Crawford uh, at the Phantom as well. So, oh, go on. Yeah, yeah no, I've, I've had fascinating times. In my well, we, we backstage after the premiere, we were at the after-show party mm. in black tie, and there's a lovely photograph when in the national papers of me and Crawford smiling at each other, mm. holding, shaking hands. Mm. I, I, I don't hold grudges. I'm not like that. Mm. Um, and I really liked Cameron McIntosh. 
he sacked me very, very gently. <laughs> uh, and Sarah Brightman? Yeah, that's different. We didn't really know each other. Mm. We didn't know each mm. other. Um, what was it like working with Kate Bush in 1979? Oh, Kate's just a delight. I was at the last night of her 20-date run at Hammersmith last year, the year before, and uh, we spent about half an hour afterwards in this about 100 people backstage, and she, she, I commandeered her for about half an hour. Mm. She, I don't think she liked mingling much. Oh, no. uh, oh, she's a delight, and yeah, she's, uh, she's uh, from a special place, you know, yeah. what can you say? How and when did you meet Dorothy, your wife? Oh, the fabulous Dorothy. Hmm? We've been together for 40 years, for Christ's sakes. Brilliant. Yeah, she's very special. Um, we met on an aeroplane. That was British Caledonian uniform did things, you know. <laughs> so she was an air hostess? She was a stewardess, a head right. stewardess, long haul. Was she a fan of Cockney Rebels? You she didn't know who me from... She was a David um, Cassidy fan. And she came up to me on this aeroplane. We were only flying between Glasgow and Newcastle. Mm. I, was, I was on a promotion tour. Mm. I was with an EMI girl. Everyone assumed was my girlfriend. She was a pretty young woman. Mm. So the three of us in a row, and uh, she came down the plane and came and leant across the back of the chair in front which was empty mm. and said the guys at the back of the plane would like to have Steve Harley's autograph and she's like looking at us the two mm. of us mm-hmm. and she clearly didn't know and so he took a paper and signed it because that's <laughs> how we were, what we were like in those days yeah. it was all a bit co- arrogant but I just was smitten immediately smitten mm. oh. oh totally she's beautiful yeah. and yeah. I was utterly smitten um, and uh, it you took still. me two weeks to find out where she was who she was and a lot of detective work went on to get a note to her her pigeonhole in Gatwick Airport, oh, where she was based, because she yeah. flew off to uh, South America for 10 days. Yeah. So, yeah, and the reason that my rock and roll marriage has lasted like it has is because of her. She can run the property. I'm away a lot. Yes. I slept in the 95 hotel rooms last year, or 90, 95 hotel beds. And so I'm away a lot, and she doesn't send me baggage. Yeah. Musicians go, they go mad and give the job up because the wife keeps phoning them in the middle of the night with baggage. <laughs> oh, the bathroom's flooded. Oh, yeah. fuck. And he's in Melbourne or mm-hmm. Helsinki or Birmingham. You don't need it. Steve, how did you get into horse racing? And is it flat racing or jump racing? Oh, both. I've owned both. Right. Uh, I prefer not to have them jumping anymore because every time they jump, there's money in the air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I've got two at the moment. Mm-hmm. Both flat race horses, but one is... Not much. He's quite good, but he's now being trained to jump. <laughs> what are their names? I'm not telling you. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I They're trained in... I don't bloody oh. see them. It's a shame. Oh. They're both trained in Scotland. Horses. I could tell you, but the point is, one of them could drop dead tomorrow. And yeah. They, they, things happen to racehorses in stables, mm-hmm. and they're not famous horses, and I don't like people following them and knowing my business anymore, you know. Okay. Have you ever owned a famous horse? No, but I won enough money to, for most people to buy a house right. off Cockney Rebel when he won 2,000 guineas. Hmm. You don't know about that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, a thoroughbred called Cockney Rebel. Hmm. A man who has become my friend got hmm. in touch with me and said, we've got this two-year-old, beautifully bred horse. We'd like to call it Cockney Rebel, may we? Well, hmm. I now have trademark. Cockney Rebel is my trademark. Right. I own it. Yeah. But I didn't then. In okay. 2007, I hadn't okay. trademarked it. Nice of him to ask. So I said to him, it was really, really kind. He, mm. he, he's a serious businessman, but he was mm. very thoughtful. And I said, look, if it's bred like that, I'll never own a horse that good that I would mm. want to call Cockney Rebel. 
and then it uh, 66 to 1 and 40 to 1 for the whole through or the whole of the winter of his two-year-old winter we were backing him to for the 2000 guineas in Newmarket the classic and he duly won it at 25 to 1 and what's the biggest horse race one of your horses has won oh mine yeah oh nothing really oh small small beans have you worked with any famous jockeys or trainers yeah, I mean, they're all sort of famous, aren't they? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, we don't think of it that way. When you're in the, that industry, you don't think about mm. fame, famous. Mm. I mean, uh, trainers, some of them are better than others, I suppose. Mm. No, no. I've, when I bought into a two-year-old recently through a friend of mine who's a good judge, I bought half of a two-year-old. I can tell you what it's called. Listen, this, it, its sire is Havana Gold. Okay. He's out of a good mare and it cost a bit and they wanted he just thought i might want to own half because they're calling it because i had another horse in the stable they're calling it havana party which is from mr raffles my song you know ooh, ooh, we're having a party yeah 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 so they're calling it having a party yeah, very good havana party yeah. and i kind of like the play on words and if it wins a race i'm associated with it which is yeah. a story for mm. you know uh, yeah, uh, that, that's one. He's, he hasn't raced yet. Mm. So would having a derby-winning horse mean as much to you as having a chart-topping record? Oh, well, when Cockney Rebel, which I didn't own, but I, I made an immense amount of money oh, be right. betting. I was, yeah. you know, it was three weeks counting it. I think winning, if I was part of a, a derby-winning horse, mm. it would be a number one single. It, it, okay. There's no question. It's yeah. that exciting. So you've won more than you've lost in horse racing? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can go lose, 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 but I get it back. Yeah, I don't bet big, but I bet more than most people would, but not big, big. I mix with people who bet big. Yeah. It's their livelihood. Professionals, yeah. but it's not me. I don't... I do it for therapy. It's a bit of fun and therapy, you know. Mm. Yeah. How much did you want to be an actor, Steve? Never, not a bit. I never will again. You were going to be starring in a movie that didn't quite work out, weren't you? Yeah, there's a lot of that goes on in that world, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. If I say I'm going to make an album, I make an album. Yes. If they say, look, we're going to make this film, you say, no, you're not. No, you're not. Did you ever turn down any projects that you later regretted declining? No, no one. Off I, don't, I don't get offered very much at all. The biggest thrill I had on the boards was in 2007. I, I, I starred in the West End after all, didn't I? I played Beckett. I mean, I played a two-hander, a Samuel Beckett play. It was a forerunner of Waiting for Godot. And we played at the Arts Theatre, which is where he premiered a lot of his stuff in the 50s and 60s. Mm. So that was a thrill, re yeah. reading an hour and a half on stage, playing and reading Beckett's musical mm. dialogue meant the world to me. I'm a Beckett I, a mad fan. Now, I was a fan of your Radio 2 shows. I used to love those. When yeah. and why did you stop? And what chance of you doing more in future? No, I won't do more. I mean, it's now two hours long on Sundays with Johnny Walker. I know, and you're on it on Sunday, aren't I'm you? coming in to see Johnny on Sundays. Yeah. He's, he's an old friend, and yeah. we're going to talk uh, quite a bit. And uh, So no hard feelings that he took your show, then? No, uh, absolutely not. No, no, no. I did it for nine years. Yes. And I loved it. I wrote every word of that. Mm. Every word. Mm. I used to enjoy the writing. I'd, I'd spend an hour on my kitchen table every week or two hours writing each show. And we'd record three at a time because I was away so much I couldn't always get down to the studio at BBC. Oh, yeah, it's a good, good... Uh, do you know what? People are strange with time. I, I can be in a black cab 
in London, Aww. from hotel to dinner or something, or the theatre, we go down quite a bit. We, and I'm in a cab, and a guy will say, I love that sound of the 70s, Steve, yeah. on the radio. I, I, I say, I haven't done that for 10 years, yeah. but it's still relevant to them. Yeah. They still think I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> and what do you think of today's pop music? I'm puzzled by the way that, that, that so many young singers yodel. I'm listening, like driving along with my wife, and, and I'll say, look, another one, yodeling. Mariah Carey. They, they keep yeah. going into this, ooh, voice. <laughs> where, 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 where did that all start? Well, the finest uh, singer-songwriter we've got is from your county, Suffolk. Well, I don't know about finest. He's the most successful. OK, I agree. Uh, I'm not a fan myself. but I, I'm puzzled today. They don't write middle eights, you know. I notice that on the radio. I hear new records, and they don't write middle eights. They don't have guitar solos. I don't think there's any rock bands anymore, are there? Yeah, I don't know. I've got, I can only tell you again, I'm, I've always lived as though I'm on the periphery of the industry. Mm. Um, I'm still an ex-journalist masquerading as a pop star. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I've never really, I've never really got a grip on... It's only when the, when the light hits me, and I've got, it hits me 50 to 100 times every year, it's only when the spotlight hits me that I come alive as a performer relaying my songs to the public, you know? Did you want your children to follow in your footsteps? No. Waiting for the phone to ring? No, no, no. They were always made aware that how fortunate Dad had been and that very few reached Dad's position in the industry. The bulk of them will be sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. So does Dorothy work with you now? Does she look Dorothy? Oh, God, no. Oh, no, no, no. Kiss of death tell you this if a musician ever says to my office or in my earshot oh yeah uh, my wife's my manager we go out of here yeah that won't last kiss yeah. of death yeah, yeah, yeah. oh no no yeah. no you, the wife doesn't you don't jagger said about bianca they asked him and he went he said you don't take the wife to the office yeah certainly not in his case <laughs> any other... anyway have you got any famous neighbors there in suffolk bill wyman's up the road Jack Bruce yeah. was, was about seven miles from here, yeah. but he died. No, no, no. I, I'm the only famous person in my village. <laughs> and most of them don't know me. <laughs> we live a very private life at home, Peter. No one knocks on our door. No one comes to the door uninvited. It's, I'm not like that. I'm really distant, I'm afraid. Mm. Who are your best-known friends? Who are your friends in the business that we'd know? Oh, I don't really mix. My friends are racing people. Steve Norman's my mate from Spandau. Yeah, yeah, Steve's one of the good people. And mm. he played those, we've, we played six concerts, you know, with the orchestra and choir. Wonderful times, mm. huge, 57 people on stage. Yeah. And Steve joins the band for them as, mm. as percussionist and sax player. And he's wonderful, yeah. And next year, you'll turn 70. How do you plan to celebrate? Well, it's interesting you ask, because I do know how I will be celebrating it. And it will be on stage in Glasgow. Oh, okay. Steve, do you have a retirement age in mind? Oh, no, you, you, you don't retire from this. Why would you? I mean, I'm traveling, which I love. I'm playing concerts that 99% sell out. Why would I? No. But if the voice goes one day? No, or? it gets stronger. Well, does it? Oh, yeah. My, my, my voice is four times what it was in the 70s. Much, much stronger. Oh. Eddie Reader is on my new album doing a duet with me. 
great voice she has. Oh, isn't she yeah. beautiful? Yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but it meant the world to me yeah. musically, and she does a fantastic job. Mm. And uh, we were discussing that in the studio, how, you know, you're using your diaphragm, your lungs, your heart. It's great exercise. What chance of you writing an autobiography one day? Oh, it's a lot of work for no money. No one buys those things anymore, and it's, it's such an effort. I'd rather someone else wrote a book about me, but I... I you know. They have. Have they? Yeah, this is, I found one on Amazon this morning. To what extent do you feel you've been given the credit you deserve? Oh, I think we marry who we deserve, and we get the credit that we deserve. That's how I live. How much do you aspire to an MBE, OBE, or even a knighthood? Oh, I couldn't... It's, 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 no, I, I'm old school. I do quite a bit of uh, giving back. You feel you've been overlooked in that department, though? Uh, I couldn't care, Tums. I absolutely couldn't care. It's not an ambition of mine. I'm not going to work towards a sirship. It mm. means it's not going to happen, and I'm not going to work towards one. That's not my style. How important to you is your musical legacy? I only started to think about it at all recently because so many people are saying such kind things. It's when you meet the younger ones, like 10 years younger than me, who bought their first record was one of mine. And I meet them, and they say kind things about my work, and that's really gratifying. Mm. And I never thought it would be. I never thought it... My reach... Oh, I don't know. How would you like people to remember you after you leave this planet? Ah, oh, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Browning. How would you like to be remembered as a musician, as an artist? I've written some lyrics which I can see on stage affect people, and I'm proud of that. I'd like to be remembered as a songwriter who got to the centre, got to the centre of them, their lives, their emotions. I'd like that.